0: John chapter 2, we're finally out of John chapter 1, it's taken a long time to get there. Now I have a confession to make this morning, I am not a wine connoisseur. And I don't pretend to play one on TV. I don't know anything really about wine. As a matter of fact, it's a personal conviction of mine as pastor that I don't drink alcohol, not because I think drinking is necessarily wrong according to the scriptures, getting drunk is, but the reason I don't drink is because I do not want to be a stumbling block to anybody in the church that may struggle with any type of addiction. So I'm not a wine connoisseur, but this morning, it's very interesting, I came across a story about a startup company in Napa Valley that has decided to develop this idea of turning ordinary tap water into world-class wine. Now, the name of this product is called the Miracle Machine. It's about $500. It comes in this special bottle, and and I tried to read all the the technology behind it, and I really didn't quite understand it. But supposedly, this will produce world-class wine from tap water in just three days. Now, here's what they do. When it comes out, they give you a little sachet to kind of put into the wine to make it taste like it's been aged for a few months. It's a little finishing powder. And the problem is, is the wine only lasts for up to two weeks. Now, I don't know if science or technology and all the things that we have today can actually turn water into wine. Now, they're even saying it takes 3 days, but has anybody been able to instantly, instantaneously, miraculously take fermented wine or take water H2O and turn it into fermented wine instantaneously? Anybody here been able to do that? No. Only Jesus has been able to do that. And so we come to this story in John chapter 2 of Jesus changing the water into wine. And if you remember last week, Jesus told Nathaniel, You will see greater things than this, greater things than angels ascending or descending on the Son of Man. And so the the thing that we're about to see is Jesus' first miracle, his first sign, the changing of water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. So let's read together John chapter two, verses one through eleven. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do not though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's the main point of this passage. Jesus reveals his glory in surprising ways so that you can fully trust him. Verse 11 is the key to this entire story. It says that Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. It was the first of his signs, the first of His miraculous signs to manifest His glory. Now go back to chapter 1 for just a moment and look at verse 14. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is about the glory of Christ. Now this says it's one of the first of Jesus' signs. Now, we have to understand what a sign is. John uses a special word here. He doesn't use the word miracle. He specifically uses the word sign. And we have to understand, why does John use the word sign? There's seven signs in the Gospel of John. We'll see them as we go along. Now, what's the purpose of a sign? A sign is to point you to something greater. Let's say, for example, all of us took a field trip, and we were going to go hike up Pikes Peak. And so we get to the base of Pikes Peak, and there is a sign that is pointing us to the top of the peak. Now, all of us could stop at the sign, and we could look at the sign, and we could admire the sign. I like the sign, it's a cool sign. It's planted in the ground, really nice. And we could sit there all day and look at the sign. Is that going to get us anywhere? No, the sign points us to the top of the mountain. So when we get up to Pikes Peak and we look across Colorado Springs and we see all the beauty, we've gotten to the top of the mountain. But the sign's important because what does the sign do? The sign points us to where we need to be. We're not supposed to specifically look at the sign, per se, but the sign is important to showing us something greater. That's what a sign does here in the Gospel of John. It's to point us to something greater about Jesus. So the the issue is not that he just turns water into wine. That's important, but what is it telling us? What's it pointing us to about Jesus? How does turning water into wine manifest his glory? Now, there's no blinding lights here. There's no burning bush. There's no parting of the Red Sea. There, it's really kind of an, a behind the scene miracle, if you will. If you read closely in the text, it's really kind of a behind the scene miracle that a lot of people didn't even know what happened. But it says in the text there in verse 11, Jesus manifested his glory. So what I want us to do, jo- John shows us here three overarching things about Jesus and his glory. And they're kind of surprising, they're kind of startling Uh, They kind of maybe rub you the wrong way, maybe, these three things, especially the first one. So let's explore these three things that the Gospel of John wants to show us about Jesus in turning the water into wine. How does it manifest His glory? Here's the first thing. Jesus will do His ministry on His timetable even when it conflicts with close family ties. Now let me explain how Jesus will do things on his timetable, his ministry, his timetable, his agenda, even if it means going against his own mother. Now let's read carefully this story. There's a wedding in Cana. Jesus is invited. His disciples are invited. And Mary's there. And interestingly enough, John does not even tell us Mary's name. It just says the mother of Jesus. And so she's there, the disciples are there, and, it's, and it's, it's a wedding. Now, we're not quite familiar with how weddings operated in the ancient world. In our culture, how does a wedding work? Okay, you get invited to a wedding, you show up probably at a church or some venue, it's maybe an hour-long ceremony, and then you go to a reception, and depending on the bride and groom, it may go late into the night. But you're not going to spend more than a day at a wedding, are you, in America? Okay, in the ancient culture, those weddings lasted up to a week long. It was a week-long affair. So when you went to a wedding, in that Jewish culture, you'd plan on being gone for a week at the wedding. And here's the deal. If wine ran out, it was a big deal. It would be a social faux pas. It would be an embarrassment for you as the bride and groom to run out of wine early. As a matter of fact, they also said you could actually be sued. You could have a lawsuit brought against you as a a groom if you ran out of wine at your wedding. So like three days into it, you ran out of wine, you could get fined by your guests So there were some ramifications about running out of wine. Now, let's just not squabble about the whole issue of Jesus turning water into wine. I don't want to make it a big issue. Was it wine? Was it fermented juice? Was it cider? Was it grape juice? What was it? It was fermented drink, okay? It was wine, probably mixed with two-thirds of water, probably the alcohol content of what our modern-day American beer is. So it was fermented drink, okay? But here's what happens. The wine runs out. And Mary, in verse 3, comes to Jesus when the wine ran out. Mary, the mother of Jesus, comes to Jesus and says, they have no wine. Now here's where it gets tricky. We're not really told what Mary knows. Does she know something about her son Jesus? Is she expecting Jesus to do a miracle? The text doesn't say. All she says is they've run out of wine. Is she expecting Jesus, because he's the firstborn son and he has his friends with him, to be resourceful and go find wine? We really don't know. She just comes to Jesus and says, the guests are running out of wine. Do something about it, son. Now, how does he answer her? In verse 4, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, at first glance, that sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? Like in our culture, if we were to go to someone and say, Woman, what are you asking me about? That's pretty rude, isn't it? That's not really what Jesus is doing here. He's not he's not like Mr. T saying woman, you know, or whatever. He, he's, he's not being rude. He's being he he he's being abrupt. Here's the issue, guys. You can't overpa- you can't pass over this. He is actually being a little brisk with his mom. He's not being rude, but he is rebuking his mother courteously. He is rebuking her courteously why is he telling his mother why are you bothering me with this what does this have to do with me here's the reason this is jesus's first public appearance this is jesus's beginning of his ministry and he's not going to allow even his mother to dictate his ministry to dictate the timetable of his ministry, to tell Jesus what to do. Jesus has got his own agenda. Jesus has got his own mission. And even his own mother is not going to get in the way of preventing Jesus from doing what he's doing, even if it means going against his mother. What was Jesus' mission? John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was Jesus' mandate, his mission? I'm going to do the Father's will. I'm going to do the will of him who sent me. That's what I'm going to do. John chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus said, He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So here's what Jesus' mission was all about. I always do what's pleasing to my Father. I'm about my Father's will. I'm about doing what my Father has called me to do. And if that comes in conflict with any human agenda or any person wanting to manipulate or any person trying to sidetrack me from what my father's agenda is, I've got to gently rebuke them and tell them that I'm on a different timetable, even if it means going against my own mother. What does Mary need to realize about Jesus? Yes, it's her baby boy. Yes, it's the miraculous birth of her firstborn son mary needs to realize that jesus is the messiah he's the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world even hers she's got to submit to his lordship she's got to submit to his timetable she must trust in him as savior and lord and be on his agenda not hers you know mary shows up twice in john's gospel right here and at the very end if you think Jesus is being rude to his mother, he's not. He's, he's basically setting the uh, priorities from the very beginning of his ministry. Mother, listen. I know you have what's best in store for me, but I'm on a different timetable. I'm on my father's agenda. Now, later on in the Gospel of John, when, he, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he makes gracious provisions for Mary, for her future. In John nineteen twenty six 26-27, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Now there's the term again, woman, behold your son. It's not rude, he's just saying woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her in his home. Jesus is saying basically, John, take care of my mother after I have died and gone back to heaven. So she's a good Jewish mother. And she need not intrude upon Jesus' mission. She needs to realize that she needs to to submit to his leadership, to his lordship. She needs to trust in him personally as Lord and Savior. She's not going to control and manipulate him. But you know what? The question is, how do you know this? How do you know that Jesus is on his timetable? Well, he answers it. Look at the second half of verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Notice what he says, my hour has not yet come my hour i'm introducing you to a term in the gospel of john the hour what is the hour that john is talking about here it's it's code word for the cross anytime the word the hour shows up in the gospel of john it's code word for the cross I, my time is not yet ready to be glorified on the cross john 7 verse 30 so they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour's about at hand. This is is just hours before he's going to be betrayed. John 17, verse 1. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane praying right before Judas comes to betray him. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is has come glorify your son that the son may glorify you so all jesus says to his mom is my hour has not come now does she understand what he was saying i don't think she did i don't understand what you mean by this son but think about mary for a moment had she not caught a glimpse of this before when jesus was 12 i mean all along jesus is probably saying things to his mom that she has no idea what he's saying luke chapter 2 48 through 50, when he's 12 years old. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in a great distress. And he said to them as a 12-year-old boy, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. All Mary knows is an angel visited me I miraculously gave birth to a son as a virgin birth. I've seen this boy grow up. There's something special about him. He's the Messiah, and I love her simple faith. After Jesus says, Mom, why are you concerning me? My hour has not come. Listen to what she says. I love it. Look at verse 5. The mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I mean, in that faith, do whatever he tells you. He's the Lord. He's the master. He knows what he's talking about. Just do Whatever Jesus tells you to do, he's got it all figured out. I wonder if you and I live by those words. Do you do whatever Jesus tells you to do? And you may ask yourself, well, how do I know what Jesus is telling me what to do? I need to know this. Every time you open your Bible and you read the words of God and there's a command to be obeyed, Jesus is telling you what to do. So the question is, are you obeying all of it? Are you doing what Jesus tells you to do? When you read his word and he commands you, are you obeying him persistently, consistently, wholeheartedly, in everything, without question or without hesitation? Are you doing what he tells you to do? Listen to what Jesus says later on in the Gospel of John. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. How do you love Jesus? You keep his commandments. You do whatever he tells you. You do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Now, what's the lesson that we learn from Mary here? You cannot manipulate. You cannot try to get Jesus to act upon your timetable. You can't intrude upon his lordship over the situation. Mary was in danger of trying to, to get Jesus to do something that went against the hour that was to come. And you and I can't manipulate, we can't control, we can't cajole Jesus on our timetable. Now, most of you are probably saying, that no, I don't do that. Pastor Sean, I don't manipulate Jesus. I don't control Jesus. Let me just ask you a question. How often have you found yourself praying something like this? Jesus, you've got to do so and so because I've had such a hard time, and you owe it to me. Jesus, you owe it to me. Jesus, I've lived such a good life. Jesus, I've suffered so much. Jesus, look what I've done for you. You've got to do this for me. You're obligated to do this for me. Jesus, you have to do this. How many of us have ever prayed that way? Jesus, you've got to do this for me. Does Jesus got to do anything for us? No. He's not obligated. He doesn't owe us anything. And so anytime we try to get Jesus to do something for us because we somehow think that he owes us, we're trying to manipulate him. Do you realize that Jesus didn't even have to save us, didn't have to choose us, didn't have to, have to do anything for us? This is what Paul reminds the, the Corinthians in First Corinthians chapter 1. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Here's the interesting thing, and this is kind of confuses me, okay? So this is a Pastor Sean is confused moment, okay? Is it okay for me to be confused? If I'm confused, we're all confused. This is what happens sometimes in the Bible. Jesus at first refuses to do something, and then he goes ahead and does it anyway. That's what happens here. He tells his mom, why are you bothering me with this? But then he goes and does the miracle. Here's the issue. Jesus will often refuse at first and then he does it. I don't quite understand all of that, but here's what I do know. He's doing it on his timetable. He's doing it on his agenda. He's doing it because it's part of God's plan. Because what did Jesus say? I always do what pleases the Father. I've come to do the Father's will. So the first thing we see here about Jesus is that he's not going to be manipulated. He's not going to be controlled. He's going to do ministry on his timetable, even if it means going against his own mother. Because he's the Lord. He's the master. He's doing the will of his Father. This is the beginning of his ministry. He's not going to be sidetracked. But here's the second thing that John shows us. And this is the bare miracle. Jesus has miraculous power over the natural, chemical, and molecular order. This is a miracle. Verse 6, what does it tell us? There were six stone jars holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus tells the servants, fill it. And they fill each of them to the brim to probably avoid fraud. that They're filled to the very top. And the servants fill the water to the brim. They draw the water out of the, out of the stone jars. They take it to the banquet master. He's some type of a master of ceremonies, maybe kind of like a, a wedding coordinator. He, he, they take the wine to him. He takes it. He drinks it. And notice what it says there in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. There's the miracle. The water now become wine. It changed its molecular makeup. It went molecularly, chemically, or however you want to say it, it went from H2O to fermented wine instantaneously, just like that, which is amazing. I don't know much about vineyards. I don't know about fermentation processes, but I'm assuming it takes a lot longer than just a snap of the finger to make water into wine. Verse 10 tells us it was good wine. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk fe- freely, then the poor wine, but you've kept the, the good wine until now. The, the master doesn't spit it out of his mouth. It's not tasting bitter. It's, it's good wine, like it had been fermented for a long period of time. It was a good vintage. Now, I'll be honest with you again. I don't know anything about wine or vineyards or any of that type of stuff, but I, I do know what the Internet is, and I researched Okay, so here, here's the thing. If you go on and research, like, how long it takes for wines to get to a good vintage, no less than two years for, for good for good wine. So let me just give you some examples here. So Chardonnay needs two to six years to, to ferment. Merlot, 10 years. Zinfandel, six years. Cabernet Sauvignon, 20 years. And the Chenon Blanc, 30 years. So needless to say, if this was good wine, these guests would be waiting maybe 10, 12 years for the wine to be good. And Jesus does it in an instant. He takes water and turns it into good wine. And this was a sign. It's a bare miracle. But is it just a bare miracle? Is it, is it just a sign that Jesus does so the bridegroom doesn't get embarrassed? What's the purpose of it? Is it just so Jesus gets off? I mean, so, so Mary gets off his back? Think about how Jesus could have done this miracle. How could If Jesus were Benny Hinn, how would he do it? He would charge tickets, he would have fanfare, he would have the media, he would have the stadium full, and he'd have everybody come see the magic trick I can do and have this huge hoopla drawing attention to the miracle crusade. He would draw attention to himself. How does Jesus do this? He does it in the background where half the people don't even know what happened. Read it carefully. What does the text not tell us? Do we even find out that Mary knew what had happened? And only people that knew what had happened were the servants that went and got the wine. Even the bridegroom didn't know where it came from. The guests didn't know where it came from. The master of the ceremony didn't know where it came from. This miracle was done in the background. No fanfare behind the scenes. But yet, what does John say in verse 11? Jesus manifested his glory. In a, in a surprising way, Jesus manifests his glory, and here's the issue most of the people didn't even know what had happened, they didn't know where the wine came from. No fanfare, no drawing attention to himself. It says just his disciples believed in him. Now, was it just a miracle for miracles' sake? Or was it a sign? It's a sign. And again, we have to ask the question, what's a sign? A sign is something that is a miracle, but it points to a greater reality of who Jesus is. And so here's the third thing. It's the most important thing. Why turning water into wine? Here's the third thing. Jesus replaces the Old Testament externals with an abundant internal cleansing that leads to great joy. And let me explain why this whole Old Testament externals to internal? There's there's a bit of information that we have to understand. Look at verse six. There were six stone water jars. They were stone to prevent corruption. They weren't just earthenware. They were stone. But notice what John tells us. They were there for the Jewish rites of purification. And most probably, this was the day before sinks and dishwashers, they were, they were used for cleaning the utensils and maybe for washing of hands. But here's the issue. Something more symbolic is going on here. These large purification jars of water represented the Old Testament system of ritual purification that was inadequate, that was insufficient, that could never fully cleanse It was a purification, it was outward, it was external, it was temporary. It was all these rituals from the Old Testament. Jesus specifically replacing water from those purification uh, uh, stone jars specifically and turning it into wine is pointing us to a greater reality. What he's saying is Jesus is replacing the old order, the old way of doing things, the old external Old Testament system, Jesus is replacing with this internal cleansing that comes from him as the Messiah who can do this. See, two images come to, to mind here when you think about wine. The, the two, two images come to mind here. First of all, think about the sheer volume. There, there's no secret that the volume is given there. Six stone water jars there holding 20 to 30 gallons. Somebody do the math. How, how, much, how much wine would be flowing? About 100 to 150 gallons that Jesus transfers immediately. So just the sheer, lavish abundance, fill it to the brim, shows us something about what Jesus is doing in his grace. He's taking the Old Testament system that is, that is insufficient, and he's coming and he's saying, I'm going I'm to shower abundance, lavish mercy and grace. I'm, I'm, I'm inaugurating a new age. Go back to chapter 1 for a moment keep taking us back there, but that's the prologue. A lot of themes will come from that. Look at verses 16 and 17. For from him, for from his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, fullness of grace, this abundance of grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Water in the stone jars was the Old Testament law turning them into wine jesus is replacing it saying now it's grace and it's abundant grace so the first image we see here is just the sheer volume but there's something you need to understand about wine in that culture it's probably similar in this culture in the jewish culture wine is an image of intense joy as a matter of fact back in the old testament When God made a prophecy to Israel that he was going to deliver them out of captivity, when he was going to bring them back to the promised land, God was going to do a new thing with Israel. Notice, I'm going to read for you Amos here in a moment. Listen to the imagery that God says he's going to do when he brings Israel back into the land. It's a symbolism here. Amos chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. God promises a day where he's going to bring them back out of Babylonian captivity, and there's going to be this land flowing with wine. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes with him who sows the seed, the mountain shall drip a sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore, key word there, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. Rebuilding restoration, replacing. Now think about wine for a moment. How long does it take for wine to ferment? Maybe two years. And Jesus changing the water into wine, what he's saying is, I've come to bring instant joy. A joy that God promised would take years in the Old Testament of restoration. When you think about the fermentation process of wine, it takes a long time to get a good vintage. Jesus is does it in an instant. He says, I've come to bring you an abundance of immediate joy. You see, because the Old Testament, it was all external. It was just, you'd wash your hands, you'd cleanse. It was just kind of a Band-Aid. It was a washing. It it never got to the root. It never got to the heart. It can never go deep inside you and cleanse you from the inside out. And so what Jesus is saying in turning the water to wine is that I'm replacing that old external way of doing things with the new order. And the new order, the new way of doing things, the new covenant is this internal cleansing that is going to result in great joy. A joy from the Lord. John 15, 11. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Filling to the brim, overflowing. Your joy may be overflowing. John 16, 22. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you you see this miracle, this behind-the-scenes miracle is pointing to something greater. Jesus is basically in this miracle saying, listen, all the things that the Old Testament promised were temporary, they were external, they could never give you full joy, they could never get to the root, they could never bring this instantaneous transformation. But now that I've come to change water into wine, I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that can take the old and bring it to the new and bring immediate joy and bring this transformation that lasts. And I'm not just going to do it chintzy. I'm going to do it in overabundance, 150 gallons full, symbolically. Reminds me of Paul's words of extravagant grace in Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 7. But God being rich in, rich in mercy. Look at the words here. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with christ by grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in christ jesus that's what jesus is doing here Symbolically, the miracle is pointing to a greater reality. I am giving you grace upon grace. I am replacing what the Old Testament could never give you with intense joy, with abundant joy, with this transformation that lasts. You're going from being water to wine, and I can do it instantly because I have the power to do it, because I'm the Lamb of God who takes away your sins, and I can do this instantly. Now, notice what verse 11 says. This is the first of his signs. There's going to be seven of them in the Gospel of John. This is the first Jesus did it, Canaan, Galilee, and manifest his glory, and notice that little tagline there. And his disciples believed in him. The wedding guests did not. The servants did not. Didn't even say Mary did. At this point, his disciples believed in him. Now I want to share with you a very key word in the Gospel of John. It's that little word in. His disciples believed in. It's a, it's a key little preposition in the original language that means into. His disi- and it's all throughout the Gospel of John. His disciples believed into Jesus. Now let's think about the image here. When you believe into Jesus, you're plunging your entire life into him. You're giving your entire life to him. You're not just knowing about him. You're not just believing about him. You're you're plunging. You're diving. You're giving your entire life to him. It's embracing him wholeheartedly. You're fully trusting him. He's the only one that can do this. You are believing into Jesus, your whole body, your whole self, your whole mind, everything about you. You're plunging yourself into him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, as the only one that can take you from water, Old Testament, incomplete, external, external, to new wine transformed so jesus is going to display his glory in very surprising ways so that you can fully trust him how's he going to do that well he's not going to bow to your timetable he's not going to bow to your timetable he wants you to bow to his timetable what did mary say do whatever he says do you live by that do you do whatever he says even if it messes up your agenda Or messes up your timetable, are you on Jesus' timetable? Are you doing whatever he says? Are you following him? Do you see that he has the power over molecules, over over chemistry that just Jesus has has extreme power over the over the natural order of things? If he has power to turn water into wine, think what he can do to your heart. He alone can give you that deep joy that comes from being transformed. You see, all the Old Testament, those those pots of water, those purification water, all they could do was just do a band-aid. They, they, could, they could wash the outside of your body. And then you get dirty again, and then you wash the outside of your body, get dirty again. They could never get to the root. Changing water into wine, Jesus is now saying, I can get to the root. I can get to your heart. I can get deep inside you and transform you from the inside out and give you a joy, give you an abundance, give you a grace, and I can do it instantaneously. I can change you on the spot. You can go from being water to new wine. Just like that. 2 Corinthians 5:17 says what? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old, the old is passed away. The old Purification rites, the old jars of water, they've passed away. Behold, the new has come. The new wine has come. The transformation has come. The joy has come. The salvation has come. Who's the only one that can do that? Jesus. And so what's your response to that? What do you do? You do exactly what the disciples did. They see the glory of Jesus and they believe into him. They place their life into him. So the big question for you this morning is, have you seen his glory? Have you seen the glory of Jesus? And if you have seen the glory of Jesus, then the next step is, okay, if you've seen his glory, have you believed into him? Have you trusted him? Have you given him your all in all? Are you submitting yourselves to the king? And what will he do? When you believe into Jesus... He will transform you instantly. He will take you out of that old way, that old life of sin, that old life of trying hard to earn God's favor, and he will put you into a new relationship, new wine, flowing with joy, flowing with forgiveness, flowing with grace, overflowing to the brim instantaneously because he is the one that can do it. Do what the disciples did. See the glory of Jesus. And would you today believe into him? All in all, everything. Would you believe into Jesus? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. I'm gonna ask you a very simple question this morning. Are you a pot of water or are you new wine? Are you part of the old way of sin and trying hard and earning your way? All of these external things to somehow get right with God or have you been transformed instantly by Jesus where he changes water into wine? Has he transformed your heart? Has he put the joy of the Lord deep in you? Has he saved you? Have you believed into him? You're either one of two things. You're either lost or you're saved. You're either dead or you're alive. You're either in sin or you're in Jesus. There's no middle ground. Where are you this morning? Would you spend some time thinking, praying, considering, contemplating what's been said this morning? And if you have not believed into Jesus, would today be that day? where you see his glory and you believe into him, fully, wholly, completely, to save you. Would you spend some time in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you for this episode in the life of Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can see you on the pages of scripture in your power. And Lord, we don't even know how you did the miracle. Did you you touch the water? Did you just speak to the water? I guess it doesn't matter at the end of the day because we know it was water into wine. And you did the miracle. But it was to show us something deeper about yourself. That you can take the old, the sin, the external and transform it to the new. To joy, to grace, to salvation. And you've got the power to do that this morning, Lord. We believe it. So my prayer is that you would do that instantaneous change in our hearts the way that you did the water to the wine. Would we experience the joy of the Lord as our strength? Would we experience the abundance of grace that comes in salvation? Would we be new creations in Christ? Would we all believe into you, Jesus? Not just believe about you, Lord, but believe into you. Give you our all in all. Fully trust you. Thank you that you do things on your timetable and not on ours. Thank you that you came to do the will of the Father and no one can can thwart your plans or stop your plans. You do what you are going to do. Lord, help us to do whatever you say. Lord, help us this week to do whatever you say. When we see a command in Scripture, we're quick to do whatever you say. Thank you, Lord, for being our Savior. Thank you for changing the water into wine, showing us the power that you have to change us into what you want us to become for your glory. Thank you for manifesting your glory that we might believe in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.